Um, how many of you who were here last night when I talked about factors within nations that lead to wealth or poverty? I just want to say one clarifying thing. When we got home, this is what happens. I, Margaret is the one person who tells me the truth after I speak. <clears throat> and, um, and, and we were talking, she pointed out something. I was talking about structures within nations that have to change in order for nations to grow economically. But I didn't mean to say that giving right now to immediate needs is wrong. That has to be done too. And here's how that came about. Margaret was going and doing uh, food distribution and clothing distribution in an inner city area in Phoenix. And I would go with her sometimes, but she was going week after week. And it was a good ministry to a poorer area of the center city. But after a while, I thought, is there anything else that I can do that's different from just going down and distributing food and clothing every week? And I thought, maybe the Lord would let me understand why nations become poor or, or become rich. And uh, so it's all out of obedience to the Lord who asks us to care for the poor uh, in his word. And it's both and. I'm not saying we have to change government policies and economics within poor nations, but not give to the immediate needs of the poor. I think we need to give to those needs, but also this in addition. Does that make sense? So I just wanted to put it in. The, and the overall motivation for doing that is the Bible wants us to help the poor. And I'm wondering if there are some ways that we could do that. That was all. Thanks for letting me clarify. This morning I want to talk about one verse in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. <clears throat> the... Um, New American Standard says, watch over your heart. The NIV says, guard your heart. The ESV says, keep your heart. The idea is, care for, protect, guard your heart. Now, what is your heart? Well, when we think of heart in the English language, we think of our emotions and our feelings. And in the Bible, the heart does include that, but it's more than that. Our heart in the Bible is our deepest inward convictions and beliefs. The whole of our inward moral and spiritual life is called our heart in the Bible, particularly as our inward moral and spiritual life is viewed in relation to God. So that's what I want to talk about this morning, the state of our hearts. And just before we begin, it might be good to think, what is in my heart this morning? What, what do I feel there? Is there joy? Is there perhaps some discouragement? Perhaps some anxiety or fear? What is there? Well, that's what the Bible wants to talk about when it says, keep your heart. The context of this verse is advice that's being given from a father to a son. Verse 20, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. The father is talking to his son and saying, son, this is what life is about. Here's how the world works. Here's what you need to know in order to live in the world in a way that's pleasing to God. And I think that I can look at this verse somewhat as a father speaking to sons, but also as a professor speaking to students, for example. After 29 years now of seminary teaching, after looking at thousands of students and watching thousands of students come and go, some to productive, fruitful, fulfilling ministries, but others, sadly, to destroyed homes, destroyed marriages, and destroyed churches. I've seen this verse 
Proverbs 4.23 prove remarkably true in the lives of many, many students whom I have observed. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The verse says that our inward, our inward spiritual and moral life, our heart, is the key that will determine the course of our lives and ministries and whether we will have a life that knows God's favor and blessing or not. So let's pray once more before we look at this word. Our Father, we thank you for every bit of your word, the Bible. We thank you that every word, every part of it is breathed out by you and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so, Lord, take this verse from Proverbs 4.23, talking about our heart. Take it and make it powerfully effective in our own hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a bulletin, uh, on the back of your bulletin there's an outline. I just want to talk about three points this morning. First, what does it mean to keep your heart? Second, why should you keep your heart? And third, how can you keep your heart? So first, what does it mean to keep your heart with all vigilance? The first phrase I want to focus on is that with all vigilance. The Hebrew literally translated, and, and the reason an English version doesn't do it is it becomes kind of awkward in English, but it's above all guarding, more than all guarding, keep your heart. And so it, and, and English translations can say with all vigilance. That's a, that's a good way to render it. That's helpful. But it's saying really more than you guard or protect anything else, you have to keep your heart above all. So what do we protect? What do we guard? Well, you probably locked the door when you went out of your apartment or out of your house this morning. <clears throat> I suppose you locked your car out in the parking lot. You guard or protect that. But this verse is saying, more than you guard your apartment or your car, guard your heart. You um, keep your checkbook from overdrawing, I hope. <laughs> I don't, I'm just having to look at random at somebody. <laughs> I don't mean to pick on you. <laughs> Um, well, you watch it it's because you don't want it to have an overdraft and then the bank gives you all these fines and charges. But more than you watch your checkbook balance, keep your heart. With all vigilance, more than all guarding, keep your heart. If you have children, you watch and protect them. Or grandchildren, you take care of them. You watch and protect them. But more than that, keep your heart. You guard your life. You guard your health. You watch your diet and exercise. You try to get enough sleep. More than that. More than all guarding, with all vigilance, in other words, keep your heart. Have you been doing that? Have you been making the spiritual condition of your heart a more important concern than anything else? In practical terms, I think this means that from time to time, it may be that we have to neglect some other good things in order to pay attention to our heart. And there are many other good things in life. Your job or exercise, or house repair, or church meetings, or time with your family. All those things are important, and you can't neglect them completely. But more than all those things, with all vigilance, this word says, keep your heart. And even if you have from time to time to neglect some of those other things, don't neglect your heart. 
Now, when the verse says, keep your heart, guard it, protect it, it implies that there's some goodness to your heart, something that's worth protecting and guarding in there. <clears throat> but as soon as I say that, someone's going to say, now, wait a minute, Wayne, how can that be true? I read in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? You're smiling. You recognize that verse. You've heard that verse. <laughs> well, it's true. It's a verse in the Bible. But the question is, what is it talking about? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I do not think that verse is talking about the heart of a born-again believer in Jesus Christ in the New Testament era. And the reason I don't think so is the New Testament doesn't speak that way about the heart of a Christian believer. Listen, <clears throat> Romans 5.5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through, our, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts. Romans 6.17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You're obedient from the heart. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our hearts have been cleansed. <clears throat> 1 John 3.21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So these verses in the New Testament tell us that our hearts have been changed. Our hearts have been purified. When we came to trust in Jesus as our Savior, there's a work of the Holy Spirit to cleanse our hearts so they're no longer deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. <clears throat> There's a goodness in our hearts that is to be protected and guarded. But that's only half the story. If I stopped there, I wouldn't be telling the full truth. Because our hearts, as New Testament believers, our hearts are not perfect. And that's why you can't always just follow your heart, as some people say. Because sometimes there is sin in our hearts as well. Listen to this verse, James 3.14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. James is writing to Christian believers and saying, some of you can have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Oh. James 4.8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So that's why... Proverbs 4.23 is appropriate to us. It warns us, keep your heart with all vigilance because it can go astray. <clears throat> There's a Puritan writer a long time ago. Ryan probably knows when Flavel lived. I'm not sure, but 17th century. He's the expert. Um, John Flavel, and he wrote about this verse, keep your heart with all vigilance. He wrote, as Puritans did, over 100 pages on this one verse. Um, so I didn't read all of it. But I did read something in there that I thought was very helpful. He said, our hearts are like a musical instrument. And you can tune it. And it's just right. And it's in tune. And then you hang it on the wall. And after a few days, it's out of tune again. Or if you tune it and then you bump it, it can go out of tune. And you have to tune it again. And he said, our hearts are like that. They can go out of tune. They can get out of right relationship with God so easily. Um, 
And I, I saw this happen in kind of a, a, a way that shocked me in my own life a number of years ago. I, w- I, was on the, I was on the translation committee for the ESV Bible that is up here on the screen that many of you use, the English Standard Version. And it was, a, it was amazing and wonderful privilege to be part of that 12-member committee of, 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 with 11 other godly scholars, experts in Greek and Hebrew and um, people who loved the Lord and loved his word. We were meeting in Cambridge, England over a long period of time, day after day after day, going through various chapters of the Bible in preparation for the first publication of the ESV. And um, the days got very long and they were really demanding and really draining days. So let's say you're in the committee and, and let's say I had a suggestion that I wanted to make a change in the wording of some verse in Matthew 14. And if I leave the room and go out for a rest stop or something and come back 10 minutes later, Matthew 14 is already done. It's been voted on. It's in the Bible. I lost my chance. Well, you can't doze off for a minute because it's going, there are procedures. Now we could bring up something for reconsideration after it was done, but it required two-thirds vote and it was a lot of work. So in other words, you had to pay attention all the time. You can't snooze. And we're determining the words of the Bible. So it was, it was a wonderful experience. But at the, end of, at the end of eight solid hours of doing that, you would be just absolutely exhausted. And so we'd walk back for about a half hour walk back to the hotel where we were staying. And, you know, I'd like to grab a quick snack, then spend some time with Margaret, check some email and get to bed. But for some reason, they included dinner with the hotel room. And no matter how we tried, it was impossible to get in and out of that dining room in less than two hours. They just had their orderly way to do things that they've been done for years, I guess. I don't know. So, and then we'd talk about the Bible more during dinner, and then we'd get back to the room, and then there was just kind of the ordinary events of life to take care of, and I wanted to spend some time with Margaret, and I'd get to bed late, and then we'd get up early the next morning, and I began to just get more and more tired. So I thought, you know what? Here's a way to get another half hour sleep. I'll set my clock a half hour later in the morning, and I won't spend time reading my Bible by myself and spend time in prayer with the Lord. And that went on for three or four days, and you know, stuff started to go wrong. And Margaret noticed it, and then I noticed it. And I, I ended up making a note to myself, reminder, what happened when I missed my own personal prayer and Bible reading time. And this was even though I'd been spending eight hours a day in the Greek and Hebrew text of the Bible, talking with other Bible scholars about verses of the Bible, but I was neglecting time asking the Lord to speak to my own heart from his word. What happened? This is what I wrote, just a note to remember. Pride, talking about myself a lot, often inwardly hoping people will praise me, lack of love for friends, Irritability, relationships with friends just stall, are put on hold, general, general inward feeling of unease, unsettledness, it's hard to concentrate on scripture and prayer, self-reliance, no peace. I had to say, Margaret, I'm sorry for the attitude of heart I've had the last three or four days. 
And I had to confess that to the Lord and ask his forgiveness. And the next morning when the committee met, I asked if I could just say something at the beginning and explain to them, I don't know if that's what's happened to the rest of you, but this is what happened to me. And I'm sorry. You neglect your heart, even for a few days, and it strays. Well, that's point one. What does it mean to keep your heart? It means to keep aware of and guard and protect the whole of your inward moral and spiritual life, especially in relationship to God. Number two, why should you keep your heart? I'm going to mention two reasons. The first reason is in this verse. (coughs) Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The Hebrew phrase is not the easiest to translate into understandable English. It's, it's literally, for from it are the outgoings of life. The Hebrew word is a noun, totsaoth. It's a plural form of a noun related to the verb yatsad. Means, that means to go out. So, <coughs> in kind of a very wooden literal sense, for from it are the outgoings or outflowings of life. The picture is like your heart is the source of a stream of water that's flowing out from you. That's why the verse translates it springs of life. It looks like a bubbling spring. And that's flowing out and impacting everybody around you. I think that Jesus had this picture of our hearts being a stream flowing out to impact others when in Luke 6.45 he said this, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Someone cuts you off in traffic. You open your mouth to bless, or maybe to curse. Suddenly, what's in your heart is flowing out to impact others. Jesus, I think, also had this verse, or at least this idea in mind, in Mark 7.21, when he gave a long list of evil things that come out of people's hearts. Listen, it's hard to listen to it, so many sins that he mentions. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, Foolishness, all these evil things come from within. Here we are in May 2010. If you go back 12 months to May 2009, you turn on the television, you would hear people giving names of possible presidential candidates for the Republican Party in uh, 2012. And always in that list of Four or five names was Governor Mark Sanford of South Carolina, Republican governor, father of four children, kind of a model Christian marriage, professing evangelical Christian, believing in the Bible, going to a Bible-believing church. But what happened 11 months ago in June of 2009? News reports came out that Governor Mark Sanford of South Carolina had been secretly traveling to Argentina to have an immoral relationship with a woman to whom he was not married. What's happened in the last year? 
His wife, Jenny, has divorced him. He's lost his marriage and his family. Ethics charges were brought against him in South Carolina, and he paid a substantial fine. He wasn't impeached. He's still governor. But when his term expires, he has no political future. What happened to Mark Sanford, sadly? It started in his heart. It started when he met a woman and felt an attraction to her, a kind of emotional attachment, and there was an emotion and a feeling there that should only have been directed toward his wife and no other person in the whole world. But he felt it toward this other woman. And instead of breaking off that relationship instantly, as he should have done, instead of keeping his heart with all vigilance, he let it develop and let the relationship develop until it destroyed his life and brought reproach on the gospel and on the church. Tragically, that happens again and again when people neglect their hearts. Because that's where Jesus says, sin begins. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, etc. All these evil things come from within. Do you see why the Bible says, keep your heart above all guarding or with all vigilance, above everything else? Every time you encounter a new situation, out of your heart flow the outgoings of your life. And what is in your heart is constantly flowing out to impact other people around you. For from it flow the springs of life. I've given messages on this verse before. And yet I came to this point in my notes this morning where I said, Margaret and I have some friends back in Illinois, and we love to be with them because their hearts are full of love for Jesus and full of faith. And that's what flows out from them, and we love to be with them because it encourages our own faith and our own love for the Lord. I didn't mention in my notes the name of those people. Warren was exactly my age. He died yesterday. We heard yesterday afternoon he went to be with the Lord after a long struggle with cancer, with lymphoma. But you know what? Those words are still true. His heart was just right to the end, and we talked to Stephanie yesterday afternoon, praising God, being thankful for him, full of faith, and he passed into the presence of the Lord. Those are the kind of people I want to be with. And that kind of love for the Lord, it, 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 still, it still was true of his life to the very end. And it's still true in the email that his wife sent that's so filled with scripture and so filled with trust in God in the midst of deep sorrow and deep sadness. Many of you have leadership responsibilities in the church or perhaps in other areas of Christian ministry. Maybe you work with a youth group. Maybe you teach in a Sunday school class. Maybe you help to host a small group fellowship in your home. Maybe you lead a small group. Maybe you're on staff of the church. Maybe you just work out here faithfully putting that good lemon cake out there that I tasted this morning and the coffee. Whatever you do in the church, 
what's in your heart is flowing out constantly to impact others. If your heart is full of self and pride, then your interpretation of the Bible in your youth group devotional might be perfect. Your doctrine might be sound, but self and pride will also be what you communicate. It will flow out from your heart to infect those who hear you. From your heart flow the springs of life. If your heart is full of anger and bitterness, then angerness and bitter, anger and bitterness are also going to be what you communicate along with the rest of the message. Like a virus, it will flow out and touch others. If your heart is filled with fear rather than faith, fear will flow out from you and infect others. But if your heart is full of love for Jesus and faith in him, love for Jesus and faith in him will be the spring that flows from your heart continually and spiritually brings refreshment everyone who hears. I think this verse also gives us insight into why people and sometimes sadly churches and denominations and colleges and seminaries stray away from God's word and stray into liberalism, theological liberalism, denying the truthfulness of the Bible and denying many of its teachings. It begins when people's hearts stray from love for God and deep trust in his word. And I want to tell you a story about a professor named Charles Hodge. Hodge taught at Princeton Seminary, listen to this, from 1820 to 1878. Do the math. He taught for 58 years at Princeton Seminary. During that time, Princeton Seminary didn't hold to theological liberalism like it does today. Princeton Seminary was just rock solid in its belief in the truthfulness of Scripture and the absolute inerrancy of the Bible. And it had a marvelous impact on the church throughout the United States and around the world through many of the pastors and missionaries that it trained. And Charles Hodge himself left a great legacy. He wrote this large three-volume work on systematic theology in the 1800s, that I still used as a textbook when I went to Westminster Seminary in the 1970s. But Hodge, after he'd taught, before, first he taught Hebrew and Old Testament, and then he taught systematic theology later on. After he'd taught at Princeton Seminary from 1820 to 1826, then he took a leave of absence. And he went to Germany for two years to study. Why? Because he knew that though there was great intellectual development in Germany, the German church was infected with this liberalism that really was denying the truthfulness of the Bible. And he went for two years to try to study there and understand the liberalism that was so attacking the Bible again and again in academic circles. And when Hodge came back, he gave a speech to the students at Princeton Seminary in the chapel. And in that speech... Hodge asked, how was it that in the former great centers of Protestantism, especially Germany, how was it that Christianity had ceased to be even the nominal religion? See, Germany was where Martin Luther started the Reformation in 1517. Germany was the heart of Bible-believing Protestantism, but by 1826, it had strayed into liberalism and unbelief. And Hodge said, Why is that? Now I want to read you this quotation from Hodge. Hodge said, the the cause 
was the decline of what he called vital religion. And when he says vital religion, it would be what we call your personal devotional life or your personal walk with the Lord. So let me read this to you. Hodge says, Holiness is essential to the correct knowledge of divine things and the great security from error. Wherever you find vital piety, that means a close walk with the Lord. That means keeping your heart right in its walk with, relation, walk with God. Wherever you find vital piety, there you find the doctrines of the fall, of depravity, of regeneration, of atonement, and of the deity of Jesus Christ. Hodge then exhorted seminary students, keep your hearts with all diligence, for out of them are the issues of life. That's the King James Version of the very verse we're talking about this morning. Then Hodge said, holiness is essential to correct knowledge of divine things and the great security from error. When men lose the life of religion, they can believe the most monstrous doctrines and glory in them. So whether it's straying into infidelity in marriage or whether it's straying into doctrinal error, it starts with not keeping your heart. It starts with your heart going astray from the Lord. Even today, as it has been throughout history, out in the evangelical Christian world, there are seemingly attractive false teachings. Doctrines that just have been given visibility and been given publicity. And I think God allows those various doctrines from time to time to be evident in the church just to test our hearts. Are we going to be faithful to the Lord or not? And Ryan and I were talking about some of those doctrines and, and Randy and Steve, his friend, were talking about some of those just over this weekend. That all of a sudden you think, wow, This book is published. It's going to lead people astray. Who would ever believe that? And then more and more people start believing it. And and there are false teachings like that in every generation. Keep your heart pure before God and walking close to him. And it's, it's a protection from adopting false teaching. The first reason to keep our hearts then is for from it flow the springs of life. But there's a second reason to keep our hearts, and I don't find that in this verse, but I find it rather by looking through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, saying, what does the whole Bible say about our hearts? And if we can just think through that quickly, we find that in the very beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, God put Adam and Eve in the garden, but gave them a test to test their hearts. Would they be faithful and true to him or not? In Genesis 3, we find that Adam and Eve's hearts were not true to God, but they strayed away and sinned against him by eating of the forbidden fruit. And so sin began to multiply among the human race. And by Genesis 6, we see that God looked with sorrow on the human race because it says every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So God brought a flood and destroyed the human race on the earth, saving alive only Noah and his family. Then, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, 
There are instances where God is concerned to find a leader after his own heart. He raised up Saul as king, but Saul's heart was not faithful to God and he disobeyed. So then the prophet Samuel came to King Saul and said, now your kingdom shall not continue, Saul. First Samuel thirteen fourteen. the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded. And so David was raised up as king. David was a man after God's own heart for quite a few years. And then David himself strayed into sin with Bathsheba and David's heart was not pure before God. And so David cried out in Psalm 51:10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Solomon came along filled with immense amounts of wisdom to govern God's people, and he governed wisely for some time. But then in 1 Kings 11.4, it says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. And so throughout the story of the Old Testament, it was true what a prophet came and said to King Asa in 2 Chronicles 16.9, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. God was looking for someone whose heart was faithful. The Old Testament looks forward. It looks forward in hope to a time in the new covenant, according to Jeremiah 31, when God would write his laws on his people's hearts. And then when the New Testament begins, we see that Jesus comes. And Jesus is truly a man after God's own heart. Jesus, the one whose heart is purer than King David. Jesus, the one who is wiser than Solomon. Jesus, the one in whom the Father fully delights. Jesus, the one who can say, I always do what is pleasing to him my Father. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, who are in Christ, the Holy Spirit has already cleansed our hearts, as a number of those verses I mentioned earlier teach us. But our hearts are not completely pure, and there's sin that remains. One day, however, the New Testament looks forward to a time when Jesus returns, and then our hearts will be perfectly pure, because 1 John says, when he appears, we shall be like him, One day our hearts will be forever perfectly pure and we will know the favor of God resting on us fully forever. But in this time, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, we live in the New Covenant or New Testament age and during this period, God is still testing our hearts. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he went from city to city, knew that God was testing his heart because in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, he says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul is saying in his preaching, he was speaking to please God who tests even his own heart, the Apostle Paul. And so I think today, what the prophet said to King Asa in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, is still true. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout Albuquerque to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Even today, even this morning, God is searching our hearts. He's testing our hearts. He's finding what is there. 
The second reason then to keep our hearts with all vigilance is that the whole Bible shows that the state of our heart is very important to God. And you know, God will let different tests come into our life from time to time to test our hearts. (laughs) Kind of a humorous one happened to a pastor friend of mine. He said he used to eat breakfast quite often at a certain restaurant. One day he was walking out of the restaurant, putting the money back from change from the rest, and he noticed there was $5 extra. So he turned around, went back in, and gave the $5 back to the manager at the cash register, and she smiled, and she said, just testing you, pastor. <laughs> Little test, but he passed. I have a former student, a friend, went on for doctoral work in, um, in New Testament. He was coming to the end of his long years of study, three years in seminary for a master's degree in, in, theology, in divinity, master of divinity, and then another three years for PhD work in New Testament. And he had one job possibility, and he interviewed for it, and they said, we like you, we want you to come if you'll just change your position on this one doctrine. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I believe that's what the Bible teaches, and I'm not going to change my viewpoint on that. And they said, okay, sorry, we'll start the search over again. We'll look for another candidate. So he was coming to the end of all those years of study, and he didn't have a job. And he talked to me at that time, and I said to him, you know, I believe God sees that, and I believe he's pleased, and I think he'll care for you. What happened? Well, he got a fellowship for additional study, that is paid study after his doctoral work. He got an appointment to teach Greek for two years at the University of Cambridge in England, which doesn't look bad on your resume. And then he got a, a very significant post at a major, New Test, at a major uh, seminary in the United States. God tested his heart and he was faithful. And God honored him and took care of him. Now what will it be for you? What is the test that God might bring to your heart? Friends might turn against you. There might be illness. There might be financial setback. There might be a very difficult loss of a job. There might be difficulties with children. There might be temptation to do wrong for sake of gain. There might be a thousand other things. But God lets tests come into our lives from time to time. And he's watching. Will you continue to trust him? Not become bitter or resentful? Will you keep your heart with all vigilance? And again, I'm thinking of my friend Warren, who at age 62 passed into the presence of the Lord yesterday. A difficult test. Lasted for 11 years. Struggled with cancer. But his faith remained strong. And he's, he's gone into the presence of the Lord with rejoicing. Point three, how can you keep your heart? How do you do this? You know, when this verse says, keep your heart with all vigilance, it implies that you can know something of what's in your heart. What would be the sense of telling you to keep it or guard it or protect it if you didn't have any sense at all of what was in your heart? And so I think you can examine your heart. What do you see there? You know, if you, if you say, well, I, I'm sensing some nervousness, some tension in my heart, then, you know, it's just simple to say, Lord, 
what is troubling my heart? Will you help me understand it? And will you help me make it right? That happens from time to time with me. In the middle of the day, all of a sudden I feel I'm stressed and tense about something. And do you know when that happens, you sometimes don't even know what you're stressed about? <laughs> and it just helps to say, Lord, help me, help me sort this out. Why am I feeling this tension right now? Why am I fe- oh, yes, I was supposed to do this or I was supposed to do that. And you'd forgotten about it. And the Lord will help you sort it out. Or, oh, I'm worrying about such and such that's coming up tomorrow. Lord, I give that over to you. Or if your heart is fearful or worried, then say, Lord, help me understand this fear. Help me to trust you in my heart. And don't pollute your heart. If you know that there are books or movies or internet sites that pollute your heart, then don't go there. Keep your heart with all vigilance. I think that one part of growing to Christian maturity is growing in our ability more and more to sense what's in our heart, to learn what's in your heart, to recognize what it's like when you're in the middle of a committee meeting or for me in a faculty meeting and you find that all of a sudden you're pushing and arguing for something in the strength of your flesh and it's not really from the Lord and the Lord just wants you to shut your mouth and be quiet. Know what it feels like when the Holy Spirit convicts your heart. Sometimes when I'm in personal conversation with someone, I'll say something and I'll get almost like a physical pain right here. And it's, it's often the Holy Spirit just saying, Wayne, that was gossip. You shouldn't have said that. And I'll have to say, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said what I just said. Will you forgive me? That wasn't right. But I think growing in Christian maturity also means growing in an awareness of what it feels like when the peace of God is guarding your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Know what it feels like when your heart is in regular and continual communion with God and then learn to stay in that place more and more. That's, that's I think, part of growing to Christian maturity. Now, what are some practical things to do to help keep your heart? The first thing I just mentioned Just pause for a few seconds through the day and say, now, Lord, what's in my heart? Help me to understand what's there. But then some other things that just help keep your heart are old-fashioned, what sometimes people call the means of grace in the Christian life. Just Bible reading each day, spending time in prayer alone, time in prayer with others, worship in church, as you did this morning. Or sometimes with just putting on a worship CD in the car or at home. Acting in obedience to God's word. Caring for the needs of others. Sharing Christ with those around you when you have opportunity. Having fellowship with God's people. Those are just the old-fashioned means of grace, but they are a great help in keeping our hearts right before God. And then, finally, I just want to take a little detour here and say, I've been talking for the whole morning to people who have come to trust in Christ and have their sins forgiven. But if you are perhaps a visitor here this morning, or perhaps you've been coming for a number of weeks, but you're just not sure that you've ever put your trust in Christ first for forgiveness of sins, then I want to encourage you, before you can do any of the things I've been talking about this morning, 
there's step one that has to be done, and that is coming first in prayer to Jesus Christ and saying, Lord Jesus, will you please forgive my sins? Will you please cleanse my heart? Will you please make my heart right before God? I trust you as my Savior. If you have never done that, and there is a kind of a, a tug in your heart, a kind of a, I know, a sense in your heart that, that God is telling you, you need to do that and make things right with Jesus once for all, then I or one of the pastors here or someone else at the church would love to chat with you afterward and just talk with you about what that means, maybe look at a few verses of the Bible and pray together with you so you can make that initial step of trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Well, in conclusion, will you keep your heart with all vigilance today and this week and on into the future? If you will, from your heart will continually flow a life of blessing and a manifestation of the presence of God. And God will look and he'll be pleased and his favor will rest on you through your days and It will go on until the day when he says to you, as he said to my friend Warren yesterday, come home and well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray.